This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, January 28th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Telluride hires acting town manager, a day in the life of a miner with Finton Cole, bridging the civilian-military divide through music and a mountain weather forecast. When Greg Sund was getting a bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin, he didn't envision going into local government. I attended that school originally thinking I was going to major in wildlife management, but it was just the timing wasn't good there. I was working on a bachelor's degree, and it was pretty obvious you needed a PhD to compete for a job, so it just wasn't going to work out. He took the pivot all parents dream of and ended up in the art department. I I do watercolors and drawings and calligraphy. And it's been a little while, but I also trained in doing gold and silversmithing work. So at some point, I'd like to get back into that. During school, he was planning on opening a jewelry store. But then came Deadwood, South Dakota. Just was getting to know what was happening in local government just through conversations, and it made me interested in running for local government, so I was elected as a city council member. It was serving as an elected official that sparked his interest to work behind the scenes. As I became more familiar with local government and trying to solve issues and move the city forward, I just decided to go back to school and get my master's in public administration and get into it professionally. So that just sparked my interest I learned a lot about it. I didn't really have any exposure to local government prior to my experience in Deadwood. Sund was recently hired as the acting town manager for the town of Telluride. He fills the position after former manager Ross Herzog left the town at the end of 2021. Public Works Director Paul Rood and Finance Director Kaylee Ranta were interim, interim town managers before Sund joined the team. Most recently, Sund has worked as the town manager of Trinidad and Walsenburg, Colorado. He's also worked in local government in North and South Dakota and Kansas. He says he likes local government because of the accountability to the residents of a community. In these positions, the ultimate goal is to make a difference in the community you're serving in. And with local government, you really do have the opportunity to do that. It's... uh, It's as close as you can get to the people you're serving. And so you never forget when you're in a local government position who the owners are and who you're working for. And while he's currently serving as town manager on an interim basis, Sund notes he's not planning to just keep the ship moving ahead. He's eager to help move Telluride forward. He adds he's also interested in staying in the position permanently, if given the opportunity. I don't want to just fill a seat. I want to make a difference. And the issues that council wants to make sure get addressed in the near term too are the climate action plan, um, the employee housing, and DEI. It's not just the government's goals, also those for staff. You encourage them to set personal goals that match the goals of the community so that when they do something, they... They, get, they have a sense of achievement, too. When you, when you set goals for yourself, you can see progress being made. If you just get buried in the day-to-day minutiae, it's hard to see that. 
Outside of the office, Sund is an avid biker and exerciser. He's a Rotarian. And while new to town, he also wants to be a member of the community. I would like to get to know people in the community because it, it's important for me that people in town have, are comfortable walking in the door and asking for questions, expressing frustrations. You know, there's, there's all sorts of things people walk into town hall for, but I want them to feel comfortable doing it. So I, I plan to get out and just visit with people in the community as much as I can and make sure they know I'm friendly and I'm willing to talk to them. Sund started his work with the town of Telluride on Monday. The town is currently in the process of hiring for a permanent town manager. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Football, hockey, lacrosse, oh my! This week on A Day in the Life of a Minor, Telluride High School's Finton Cole runs the gamut on sports, but starts with a somber moment in history. Have a listen. This day in history, on January 28, 1986, Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff, killing astronauts Francis Richard Scobie, Michael John Smith, Ronald Erwinwick McNair, Allison Shoji Onizuka, Judith Arlene Resnick, Gregory Bruce Jarvis, and Sharon Krista McAuliffe. The shuttle was on a mission best described as STS-51L to deploy a satellite and study Halley's Comet while in orbit. It was the 10th flight of the orbiting shuttle and the 25th flight of the space shuttle fleet. Families watched in horror as their children died before their eyes. This was just 36 years ago, and people who remember it to this day still have a haunting memory. We observe a moment of science for those poor astronauts lost on the Challenger. Thank you. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers sadly lost to the Los Angeles Rams 30-27. to the Rams will face the San Francisco 49ers in hopes of punching their fifth ticket to the Super Bowl. They first appeared in Super Bowl XIV, that looks like 14, but they lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers 31-19. Then they appeared in Super Bowl 34, winning to the Tennessee Titans by two feet, and then appeared in Super Bowls 36 and 53, losing both times to the New England Patriots. The Buffalo Bills got nipped by the Kansas City Chiefs 42 to 36 in overtime. The Chiefs will face the Cincinnati Bengals for another shot at the Super Bowl. They appeared in the first Super Bowl meeting, losing 35 to 10 to the Green Bay Packers. Then they won Super Bowl IV against the Minnesota Vikings 23 to 7, and later won Super Bowl 54 to the San Francisco 49ers 31-20, but got spewed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 31-9 the next year. They're hoping for another title on their waists. There have been six spears in the Super Bowl. This is when one team makes a previous Super Bowl appearance and wins, but goes to the Super Bowl the next year and loses. That's called a spew. The Dallas Cowboys, Washington Redskins, Green Bay Packers, Seattle Seahawks, New England Patriots, and Kansas City Chiefs have been spewed before. Thank goodness the Tampa Bay Buccaneers aren't one of them. 
Out of all six teams that have been spewed, the New England Patriots have the most Super Bowls, but the Seahawks have the least. And here's the most interesting. All spewed teams' Super Bowls go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Isn't that so cool? I'm here with Grayson Fertig, who is the main operator of Hanley Rink. Grayson, how are the hockey teams going this year? Fenton, you're down there every Tuesday, and you get to see a little bit of the, of the live action. So I'm going to ask you at the end of this how you think it's going, right? But uh, in my view, I think we're on track. I think we have a, our style of play is emerging here in Lizardhead country. And, um, and I think we're, we're looking to build a passing program, a, a program of kids that know each other really well and operate well together. And over the years, they build into a high school team that then becomes almost unbeatable because their passing and skating is so good. Uh, not really relying on individual superstars because I don't think we have enough kids around here. And a lot of our superstars, as they grow up, they tend to leave and head to prep schools and places, you know, up in Denver to pursue uh, bigger pastures. But the kids we have, if we can really play the passing game, um, I think we'll, we'll have a strong program culturally forever, you know. And, um, and that, that starts at the youth at the youth levels where it's like the eight-year-olds are learning the passing game versus the individual take it uh, until you get stopped game. And that, that works when the kids are little, but it's, it kind of runs dry as the kids get older. So I like, I like to emphasize the passing game, and I think that's a longer time horizon of development than watching individual players get great quickly. Um, so that's one of the challenges we're working against is keeping everybody patient. Um, and that's, uh, so I'd say now, back to you, Fenton, what do you see when you're down there working, working with me on Tuesday nights? Well, I look, well, I look at the little kids and I'm thinking they're going to be great hockey players when they grow up. What would you do to help your teams win more games next year? I think every year is a different cycle. And as, as far as like winning and losing game counts, um, that's a tough one to like really measure every single year. I think that's probably one of those like statistics like you were talking about with the spew. It, it could get you into trouble. Um, but if you focus on the kids, like you said, like, hey, they're all getting better every year in relationship to where they individually were and where their teams were. Um, I think that's progress year over year versus counting the wins and losses. But the, you want to win when you're a senior the last game, right? Exactly. That's what we're going for. And that's how we're going to measure, uh, measure these kids' career and success. And it's like, you know, in some cases when the guys start when they're three and four years old, that could be a 15-year project. How do you hang in there for 15 years? What do you think? I mean, you're an athlete, you know. How has, like, the high school ride been for lacrosse? That's what I was going to ask. Have you scheduled any lacrosse games yet? They're all on the Miners website, ready to go. We start end of February and... Um, <clears throat> I think our first official game is on the 18th of March. So we've got two and a half weeks in the gyms uh, when it's going to be probably one to five degrees outside at six o'clock at night. We're going to have to figure out how to play a field sport in the gymnasium. But I think that what we've got here in, in, our, in our athletes and our team is guys that remember last year and remember what it took and remember maybe where we came up short in the, in the last game of the season. And I think that if we can get everybody focused there in the beginning on focused on details of the passing game, um, same in lacrosse, it's all about the passing game. If we can have a 10-man offense and a 10-man defense um, with and without the ball, I think we're going to have a lot of success, um, both in the regional um, 
part of the season and hopefully we'll get pushed into playoffs as well. Is the junior varsity team going to play this year? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, we've got, we've got such good numbers. Um, not every other high school like us is so um, enthusiastic. So we have more numbers overall. So sometimes like when we play Durango, they don't have a JV team. But what we'll try to do is like in, in situations where there's not a JV team, uh, I mean, you played a few varsity games. You know what it felt like jumping in there. Try to get kids into, into good situations in the games when the varsity guys can mix with the JV guys. And here's the thing is if the style of play is consistent throughout, it's not like one team is better than the other team. It's just one team, the varsity is older, more experienced than, than, the, than the JV team. But the style of play, the thinking, the, the processing of the game is all the same. The JV kids should be able to fit into the game, uh, whether they're in ninth or 10th grade, fit in and play right alongside 11th and 12th graders. And I think that's what we saw last year, really some young, especially on our defense, right? We had a lot of young guys, our ninth and 10th graders playing defense, and that's gonna be the core of the team coming back. I mean, last year it was like young defense, experienced offense. This year it's experienced young defense and, uh, and a yet to be proven offense. Frida is third in the league. How well do you think you're gonna play against them? That's a question for you, Fenton. Do you think the guys are gonna prepare and, and uh, and get serious and get ready to beat them again? Or are we going to say, oh, we beat them once last year for the first time and that was really good enough and we're going to rest on that one win last year? Now I think we're going to step up our game. Thank you, Grayson, for your time to talk with us on the radio today. I'm Fenton Cole reporting live from Telluride High School and we'll see you next week. Every winter, Telluride Adaptive Sports hosts disabled veterans from across the country for a military adventure week packed full with skiing, snowboarding, and just hanging out. This year, TASP is kicking off the week with a veterans music concert fundraiser at the Sheridan Opera House. You know, a lot of great music comes from a place of strong emotional experiences and things that just happen in life. That's Guy Jacquier with Operation Encore, a national nonprofit working to help veterans with their music careers. Operation Encore is partnering with TASP to produce the concert. For a lot of our, our musicians, and they're writing their own songs, um, they have the opportunity to experience some very intense human emotions at a very young age. Um, you know, like you're 19 and someone's trying to kill you. Um, or, or did just kill your good friend sitting next to you. And, you know, a lot of those emotions can be, you know, sorrow, loss. It can be stress. It can be wishing you were home, missing a loved one, joy of returning home. You know, a lot of, a lot of those things, it's just it's very intense. For Jackie A., those intense emotions make good music. Words convey stories, but songs can convey stories and emotions. And a lot of times the emotional connection is more immediate um, and it's stronger. Um, and then the story can kind of sit in. Jacquie says Operation Encore and the concert aims to help bridge the communication gap between the civilian community and the 1% of the population who serve in the military. Oftentimes, there are the perceptions that a veteran is sort of two ends of the spectrum. They're either, you know, a baby killer, you know, just some just some 
you know, super violent, you know, toxic male kind of running around there, or they're homeless, um, and they're a drug addict, or they're on the streets, and they're helpless. Um, and and not to say there aren't those fat tails of the curve, you know, in, in any society, but for most of them, they're just regular people. And those are the stories we're trying to get out there. Their sons, their daughters, their fathers, their mothers, they, you know, work in our community, they're come back and become first responders, all that kind of stuff. The Veterans Music Concert will be hosted by Ats Kilcher and will feature four military or spouse musicians. We have Tyree Woods, who served in the Army in Afghanistan. He's currently in Steamboat Springs, um, fronts a band called Buffalo Commons. We have uh, Rachel Harvey Hill, who was actually a military spouse. Her um, husband has served to date 22 years in the Air Force, flying in A-10s and stuff. Uh, at Operation Encore, we believe that um, a spouse that stays home and keeps the family together and moves them every two years and puts up with all that stuff is serving their country as much, if not more, than many who enlist. Um, so she's part of our crew, and she's just a really nice person and very talented and lives in Nashville, and we thought um, Telluride should be introduced to her. Andrew Wiscom um, uh, served nine years as a sniper in Afghanistan, Iraq, Honduras. They tell me that this road reaches forever And it stretches out beyond the Midwest style And then last but not least, John Evans, who um, served as a medic and a first responder in Iraq, uh, kind of along the Syria border. Um, but he currently lives in Denver, uh, works for the VA, um, helping other veterans access uh, services and programs. Um, but he's also a talented musician, and uh, we want to introduce uh, him, to, him to Telluride. Jacquier notes you don't need to be military, a veteran, or even have a connection to the military to enjoy the show. This is just really good music, okay? Um, I mean, yes, this is a veteran show and we support them because they're veterans, but they're also really good musicians and songwriters. At the same time, he encourages the audience to come with their curiosity open. I know sometimes there's a reluctance because, oh gosh, this is going to be all, you know, rah-rah, around the flag, Toby Keith. That's not what this is. I mean, this is people talking about returning home from Iraq and, and being a little bit disoriented or, or losing a buddy in combat. Um, or, you know, Rachel has a song about she wrote for her husband on the tenth, their 10th wedding anniversary about, you know, another trip around the sun and every, every year about being married to someone who was off and away. Um, so, you know, you don't have to be in the military to understand what it's like to be away from a spouse who maybe has a job that takes them away for periods of time. The Veteran Music Project concert will take place at the Sheridan Opera House on Saturday, January 29th at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at SheridanOperaHouse.com. The concert is a fundraiser for TASP. Telluride is busting at the seams with talented local artists. But having talent isn't always enough to get a project off the ground. Like it or no, funding is also an important piece. To help support authors, musicians, photographers, acrobats, potters, and artists of all kind, Telluride Arts is giving a number of small grants to local artists. Telluride Arts announced its 2022 Small Grants for Artists recipients this week. Five Telluride-based artists were awarded this year. 
Each year, a peer-selected panel of artists and arts professionals review and evaluate proposals to award the funds. Proposals are based on quality and composition of the work and contribution and enrichment to the Telluride community. Grant recipients will also share their work publicly through performance, exhibitions, or workshops. This year's recipients include Britt Bradford for her project Alchemy. Bradford is a contemporary artist and classical painter. The project will be a series of paintings in Telluride looking to explore the themes of alchemy and the hero's journey. Artist, comedian, and musician Devo received a grant to help support the production of his first studio album, Balance. It's a, quote, deeply personal and creative outpouring he's been working on for over a decade. Justin Criado received a grant to help fund the publication of Chronicles of Chaos. Criado is the editor of the Telluride Daily Planet. The book will be a collection of short works, revised and expanded versions of columns from the newspaper. Photographer Scarlett Halvenstant received funding for her project, Studio 81426. Her goal is to build a photography studio in a retired woodshop in Ophir. She hopes to provide professional in-studio headshots and product photography, in addition to offering photography classes for adults and young people. Finally, musician Tyler Simmons received funding to help build an online portfolio of work and expand his work as a musician. He currently performs as a solo artist and in bands such as Lavalanche, Porch Couch, and Patio Chair. Since its inception in 1999, the Telluride Arts Small Grants Program has supported over 300 local artists. When Omicron hit San Miguel County over the holidays, it strained the capacity of the Telluride Regional Medical Center. In those days, the Med Center asked the community to shift their non-urgent visits to telehealth to minimize exposure of both patients and staff. But now, as cases continue to decrease, the Med Center is welcoming back the community in person to the building. But there will be a few new and continuing COVID protocols to keep in mind. Primary care providers have upgraded their masks from surgical to N95 or KN95 for increased protection. The med center will be screening patients for COVID exposure and symptoms at the front door before entering the waiting room. Despite changes to quarantine guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the med center is still asking patients to schedule telehealth visits for 10 days from the onset of COVID symptoms or testing positive. And patients showing COVID-like symptoms will be seen in the respiratory unit, separate from primary care. Medical center officials say they are confident with the new protocols, the med center will be able to continue serving patients with everything, from well health visits to health screenings to child immunizations. Of course, the med center asks the community to follow the five commitments throughout daily life and call 911 in the case of an emergency. Colorado just got a lot more information on its backcountry search and rescue program. Colorado Parks and Wildlife recently completed a study to identify challenges with BSAR with the intent to use the information to improve the volunteer-based program. The study looked at a number of issues faced by SAR, including coordination structure, compensation, retirement, equipment, and training and outdoor safety education. It also investigated the physical and mental needs of SAR volunteers. 
According to CPW data, Colorado BSAR organizations respond to more than 3,500 search and rescue incidents a year, more than any other state. There are nearly 3,000 unpaid SAR responders volunteering for almost 50 search and rescue teams in Colorado. The study shows collectively those responders give over 500,000 hours per year and pay $2,000 out of pocket annually for equipment, fuel, and other expenses due to SAR incidences. San Miguel County Search and Rescue, along with nearly 50 other search and rescue organizations in the state, participated in the CPW study. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Today, we're taking a look at some rule changes on the state level. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission regulates the oil and gas industry. They have been discussing whether companies should put more money up front as a financial assurance, commonly known as a bond, to guarantee there is enough money for the state to clean up a well site if a company goes bankrupt or walks away. From KVNF, Chad Rich reports. In 2019, the mission of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, or COGCC, changed from fostering to regulating the oil and gas industry. One of the measures the commission is evaluating is how wells are bonded or guaranteed that they'll be cleaned up when extraction is complete. COGCC Commissioner John Messner. The current financial assurances may not be adequate and we need to undergo a rulemaking in order to evolve those financial assurance requirements. If a company walks away from a site without cleaning it up, it becomes an orphan well. And it is the state of Colorado's responsibility to address plugging, abandoning, reclamating, and remediating that particular well or operation. Bonds for wells are like deposits for rental apartments. When the operator is done at the site, they're required to clean it up, like a tenant would an apartment. If that happens, the bond is returned to the operator. If they walk away, the state keeps the bond and becomes responsible for cleanup. The COGCC estimates it costs over $82,000 to clean up a single well, but bonds are often a fraction of that cost. Individual bonds range from $10,000 to $20,000 per well, and blanket bonds can bring down the cost to less than $1,000 per well. According to Carbon Tracker, a nonprofit that monitors financial implications around fossil fuels, that leaves nearly $7 billion in uninsured wells in Colorado. One way to guarantee operators clean up their sites is to require companies to put up bonds that cover 100% of the cleanup costs. But Lynn Granger of the American Petroleum Institute says that's not realistic. Unfortunately, not all companies would be able to get to 100% full cost bonding or it wouldn't make good business sense for them. And that would have a pretty devastating effect on the industry here in Colorado. Nobody's advocating for that. It's probably true that it would be quite difficult for the vast majority of companies to come up with the full cost of their cleanup operations tomorrow. That's Andrew Forks Gudmanson of the League of Oil and Gas Impacted Communities, or LOGIC, a Denver-based advocacy group. We want operators to work towards that full cost bonding amount over a reasonable period of time. 
in some cases that could be five years, in some cases it could be 10 years, but at the end of a you know reasonable pay-in period, we would like every well to be covered by a full cost bond. Out of Colorado's roughly 50,000 wells, between four and 500 are orphaned. That pales in comparison to the 8,000 found in Pennsylvania. Still, these sites can emit greenhouse gases like methane or leak harmful chemicals into waterways and onto soils. And oil and gas production is still on the rise. That means more wells will be drilled in the coming years and decades, even as renewables chip away at the energy sector's market share. Forks Gudmundson of Logic says that could result in more orphan wells. The oil and gas industry in Colorado is essentially at the whim of the global oil and gas market. The vast majority of operators plug in abandoned wells through cash flow, basically as they generate revenue for their producing wells, they use that money to plug old wells. If they generate less revenue, they will have less revenue with which to plug and abandon wells when they're at the end of their life. So anything that could negatively impact the value of oil and gas could stand to negatively impact cleanup operations in the state. As hazardous as they may be, these sites could actually provide some economic benefits to frontline communities, as the Biden administration recently approved funding for cleaning up orphan wells. Dan Brissett is with the Environment and Energy Institute, a bipartisan nonprofit that promotes sustainable societies. Plugging wells is an economic activity, and somebody has to do it. And there is some transferability of skills between fossil fuel jobs and oil plugging jobs. So to the extent that there's any silver lining, it comes in the form of jobs. But Brissett says it's not worth it. You would never trade orphaned wells for oil plugging jobs. The new rules are expected to be released the last week of February. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Chad Rich. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 10 degrees. Saturday should be sunny during the day and mostly clear at night with a high around 40 degrees and a low near 20. Sunday expect sunny skies with a high in the mid 40s. Sunday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low around 20. This has been the news for Friday, January 28th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.